from APM American Public Media. This is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. A lot of people in the higher education world are worried about the future. Rising costs, more competition for fewer applicants, the rapid pace of technological change. There are plenty of threatening trends to disturb the sleep of professors and administrators. When Kevin Carey looks into the future, he sees the end of college, and he says that's a good thing. Carey directs the Education Policy Program at the New America Foundation and is an influential writer and commentator on education. His new book is titled The End of College, Creating the Future of Learning and the University of Everywhere. Kevin Carey, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. So what is the University of Everywhere and how will tomorrow's students attend this university? The University of Everywhere is my attempt to describe the higher education world that I think people like my daughter, who is four years old, will attend. Um, Like a lot of people, as soon as she was born, uh, there was this kind of mental countdown clock in my mind that started at age 18 and um, went all the way to uh, uh, zero when she turns um, 18 years old, which means that my wife and I will have to find a way to pay for her to go to college and find a good college for her to go to. And this is, you know, really a source of anxiety for many, many parents. My conclusion in the book is that uh, whereas... When I went to college, there was really only one option for going to school, which was to attend, again, an institution that was designed a long time ago. When she goes to college in uh, the late 2020s, there will be three options. One will be some organization that has the name of an existing college, although I think it will be substantially different in how it organizes itself. Another will be some kind of educational experience that is mostly intermediated by technology. I hesitate to even use the phrase online education because I think that evokes a a particular kind of interaction between people and computers that has a lot to do with monitors and keyboards and um 15, 20 years from now, the nature of human-computer interaction, I think, will be quite different. It will evolve. It will be more fluid, um, less artificial, more human. But some people will very much, uh, quote, go to college that way. And then the third option will be uh, going to a new kind of educational organization that I think will arise given the both economic and educational potential of information technology. These will be places that people actually go to. I don't think that the future of education is one in which um, it's not a solitary future which, where we all learn by ourselves. Nobody learns best by themselves, or at least very few people. Um, so we now have the potential to create new learning organizations given the economic and educational possibilities of what information technology provides that will be places where people can leave home and live and learn among other people, have direct personal relationships with mentors and other students, but also have access to global learning communities through information technology that are much different and much larger and more diverse and more interesting than what you can get inside the kind of walled gardens of learning that that have been the traditional college education experience. So the University of Everywhere is a world in which everyone that has access to technology will have access to at least one of those three options, and in many cases, more than one of them. You point to a university in Rochester, Minnesota, as a kind of early model for the University of Everywhere. Can you describe this place? Yes, this is the uh, University of Minnesota at Rochester. So this is a branch campus of the University of Minnesota system. It was uh, built uh, about 10 years ago. Um, 
it was put in Rochester for one reason. The Mayo Clinic is in Rochester, and there wasn't a, a branch campus there. So the state leaders, I think, felt very uh, wisely that it would make sense to uh, co-locate something that was near this huge center of, of health research. What's interesting about the branch campus is that it's very, very different than a college campus that, that one might go to typically. Um, they built it in some uh, abandoned in an abandoned food court in downtown Rochester that sort of hadn't worked out very economically. They just renovated the space there. All of the classes are small. I don't think uh, any of them are larger than 30. There are only two majors um, at the University of Rochester, Minnesota, health sciences and uh, I think health sciences administration. So it is a very specialized institution that was built um, to take advantage of the economic and educational resources that were already there in the community. Uh, the education is really top-notch in my observation. I talked to the students and the faculty, the chemistry professors, the biology professors, the writing professors, the philosophy professors actually coordinate their curriculum week by week, So, um, which is something that's just unheard of in a traditional university where the departments are all separated from one another and um, at best don't talk and at worst kind of fight for resources and, and, and status. Um, and the, the students, if they want to go to the gym, they don't go to some huge kind of behemoth gymnasium that the college built to attract students. They go to the YMCA. Um, they don't, they aren't part of this kind of industrial alcohol consumption culture that exists in a lot of institutions where, um, to be young is to be drunk all the time. Um, they, but they still socialize. They work really hard. Um, and crucially the cost of doing all of all this is basically being run on the cost of standard University of Minnesota tuition. Building this whole place costs the state and the, the local government a few million dollars, which, you know, compared to the billions of dollars it would cost to create a traditional university from scratch is, is not very expensive. It's, it is, they use technology in all the ways that make sense, um, but it's not as if it is a, uh, a, a college or university that is primarily technology-based. It's just technology-enabled. Uh, there's really no reason why we couldn't build hundreds or thousands of new institutions like this around the, around the country. It just really hasn't occurred to people yet that it would be a good idea. You write that the current higher education system is based on ancient institutions in their last days of decadence. Can you explain? My book really is concerned with two things. One, what happened to American colleges and universities? Specifically, how did they become so amazingly expensive to the point that middle-class families are uh, forced with the possibility of ruinous amounts of debt just to send their children to college? Um, and also, why are they so inattentive to their core mission of teaching undergraduates and preparing them for the world in front of them. And in my mind, the answer to both questions goes back to the design of the college as we know it, which is really um, a design that mostly came about in the late 19th century. So that's what I mean by ancient, maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but in all seriousness, most of the important decisions about how we educate students and how we create and um, design colleges have their roots in the late 19th century, which was a very different world, both in terms of who went to college, but also the kinds of information technology that was available to us, which really leads to the second part of the book, talking about how modern information technology is going to uh, challenge those decadent institutions and really forge a very different kind of uh, learning experience for the next generation of students. And we'll get to that in a minute, but I want to just ask, what is it about the way colleges and universities are designed 
that in your mind uh, does not serve the students? Fundamentally, they're confused and incoherent institutions. Um, and, and this is not a new observation by any means. Um, Robert Maynard Hutchins, who was the president of the University of Chicago in the 1930s, wrote a, a very good book called The Higher Learning in America. And it begins by saying, the most important thing to understand about the higher learning in America is the confusion that besets it. And what he meant by that was that colleges and universities, then and now, um, are really trying to accomplish a lot of different and in many ways contradictory things at once. They're trying to be research institutions, meaning that they uh, hire professors with research credentials, with PhDs, and give them large amounts of autonomy both in how they conduct their scholarly work, but also in terms of how they teach. They are trying to train people for jobs. This is really the mission that has its roots in the, the Moral Land Grant Act of 1863, where we depend on our colleges and universities to train people for practical professions, to be engineers and teachers and doctors and lawyers. Um, and then they also are trying to accomplish liberal arts education, which is a different kind of approach to education, a very important one, but not the same as conducting research and not the same as just training people for jobs. And by trying to do all three of those things at once, um, colleges in many ways make a lot of very important sacrifices. Uh, most specifically, we have a college and university system where the credentials and the training that people need in order to get jobs as teachers don't have a lot to do with teaching. Um, you don't need to be trained in pedagogy to, to get a PhD. And in fact, if you're going to succeed as a scholar, you often are obligated to neglect your teaching. Um, that same kind of incoherence and complexity also really has thrown uh, college and universities into a race for status with one another. Uh, they are always trying to um, one-up the competition in terms of having nicer buildings and, quote, better students. Um, they define success in terms of how many students they choose not to enroll, not how many students they choose to enroll. And the end result is, I think, institutions that are too expensive, too self-absorbed, um, and not nearly focused enough on their core obligations to teach and to help students learn. There have been a number of technologies that were expected to revolutionize teaching over the years. First radio, then television, then computers in the classroom. But, you know, colleges really haven't changed that much, as you've pointed out. Why are you certain that what we're calling the Internet uh, today online uh, is a game changer? Yeah, you're right. By sort of calling for the end of college, I'm I'm joining a long roster of people who all turned out to be wrong. Um, the reason that I think this time is different, and and that this and that I'll be right, is that the technology is fundamentally different. All of the previous things that you talked about, radio, television, um, they were all broadcast technologies. So you could take information from one place and put it out into the world very quickly and very cheaply to a lot of people for not a lot of money. But there was um, very little interactivity. I mean, distance education, as we think of it, goes all the way back to the postal service, which is its own form of information technology, not electronic, um, but information technology nonetheless. The postal service is an information network that's open, that's inexpensive, that reaches lots of people. And as soon as that was created, we had correspondence courses. The problem there, of course, was that the, it took uh, too long for the information to go out and come back to sort of simulate a traditional uh, higher education. The difference between the, the technology we have now and everything we've had before is uh, it's much, much better at the broadcast part of it. Uh, it costs essentially nothing to store and transmit information now. Um, but it's also highly interactive. So the information can come back from the student 
to the school instantly, um, and it's computational. And so we can use computers not just to move information, but to understand and process information. And I talk a lot in the book about how some very, very smart uh, cognitive scientists at places like Carnegie Mellon University are using artificial intelligence to create learning environments that are actually in some ways better than what you would get just simply sitting in the back of a lecture hall at a traditional school. Some observers of this trend towards what you're calling the university of everywhere worry that the residential college experience will go back to being an option just for the elite, which it was before the GI Bill uh, sort of opened up public education to, to many more people, and that everyone else will be studying online. What do you think about that? Well, certain kinds of residential experiences have always only been kind of in the realm of the elite. And we should keep in mind that the um, 18-year-old college student sitting in a dorm is is not the typical American college student today. Uh, those people make up maybe a quarter of all of American college students, full-time student enrolled from high school living on campus, maybe one out of four. Most college students um, are non-traditional in some way. They have jobs. They have families. They attend school part-time. They commute. And in many ways, they're the ones who are most economically vulnerable. And, and so we should be mindful of, of their needs and concerns and the many, many different ways that we can use information technology to provide um, a better, higher learning for them. That said, the traditional experience remains uh, really important, and I don't think that in any way that we have to choose between them. If we can use technology to bring down the cost of providing um, access to the best teachers, uh, the best learning environments, the best lecturers, uh, the best information resources, which we certainly can do, then that actually frees up money to provide more subsidies for the kind of residential education that is very important and very much part of, of the learning experience for a lot of people. So again, I think um, the University of Everywhere is both um, about online education for people for whom that is what they need and what they want, but also creating spaces for new residential and in-person educational organizations that can be both more effective and less expensive for students. Kevin Carey, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Kevin Carey is the Education Policy Director at the New America Foundation. His latest book is The End of College. You can visit the University of Minnesota Rochester by listening to our documentary, Don't Lecture Me, which you can find on our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, check out our many other podcasts on education ideas and trends, browse the documentary archive, and comment on our coverage. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. We are on Facebook at American.RadioWorks, and you can follow us on Twitter at AMRadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, Lumina Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public.